All right, praise the Lord. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter number 6. Mark chapter number 6, we'll begin reading in verse number 14. Be reading a passage of Scripture that I'm sure you are all familiar with. One that is so stirring, even after many times of reading it and knowing it all these years. Mark chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, Now King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, It is Elijah. And others said, It is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. I want to speak to you this morning on this thought, the death of a conscience. The death of a conscience. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, again for this day that you've given us. 
Lord, we thank you for the rain that has fallen and how needed it has been after a period of, of dryness and drought. And Lord, how refreshing it is to the ground that it's so easily seen by the uh, nourishment that that rain gives. And Lord, I pray that spiritual rain would fall upon us today through your word, that you would nourish us and feed us, not upon philosophies, not upon the methodologies of men, but upon your word, feed us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to every heart that is here, both the believer and the unbeliever. I pray, God, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, you, using your word, would do what I cannot do, and that is draw the sinner to your son Jesus and gloriously save them. Father, we ask you to meet with us in a special way. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This passage before us is probably one of the blackest episodes in all the pages of the scriptures. It is a record of how Herod Antipas murdered John the Baptist in cold blood. As we have seen, there are three main characters in this particular passage of scripture here in Mark chapter 6. We have Herod, his wife Herodias, and then we have John the Baptist. We have Herod, who is a wicked king. We have Herodias, who is a she-devil of a wife. And we have John, who is a courageous prophet of God. And they remind us so much of the Old Testament triad of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah. Ahab was a wicked king. Jezebel was a she-devil wife, and Elijah was a courageous prophet. Now there is some debate as to who is your favorite prophet. Uh, Some of you may be more fond of Elijah than Elisha, or you may be more fond of Isaiah than of Jeremiah. There is some subjective debates on your favorite prophet. However, there is no debate as to who is the greatest prophet. Because we have it straight from the lips of Christ Jesus himself, where Christ said in the book of Matthew, among those born of women, that's everyone, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So that's it. The debate is over. The greatest prophet is not Elijah, not Elisha, but John the Baptist, the last prophet. So that alone, that statement alone from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself ought to cause us to take note of this extraordinary person, John the Baptist. Now we know that John the Baptist had a miraculous uh, 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 childhood, he had a miraculous birth, 
not in the sense of a virgin birth, but because he was born to the very aged priest, uh, priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth long after the time it was biologically feasible for them to have children. So even in his birth alone, it was a miraculous birth. And so John, from his childhood, uh, uniquely was alive unto God. He had a heart for God, and as he grew in his knowledge of the Scriptures and God's call upon his life, he took up even the dress of the ancient prophets, wearing a rough coat of camel's hair and a leather belt, and living in the wilderness on a diet of grasshoppers and wild honey. And while John was a alone communion with God, as he was alone with God and in the wilderness, John developed, as we shall see, a very intense morality, a very strong sense of righteousness. Now, we know that John was a man of great conscience. He was a man of great moral courage. And one day, as we have just read, he would lose his head, but he would not lose his conscience. He was a man of conviction. When John burst from the wilderness and onto the national scene, he boldly denounced sin, and he called people to repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know, John absolutely feared no one. He feared no one. Even shouting to the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees, he called them, you brood of vipers. You bunch of venomous snakes. Uh, Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And we think about that boldness. That if John was bold enough to call out the sin of the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, then it was inevitable that he would collide at some point or another with the corrupt Herodian dynasty, its present degenerate leader, Herod Antipas, and his rulers and his wife, Herodias. Now, who was Herodias? Well, Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, Aristopulus, thus making Herodias Herod Antipas' niece. Now, incest within the Herodian dynasty was a common thing, sadly. And so Herod marrying his niece wasn't that big a deal in that particular day in that family. What was not typical was when he met her, was when he met her in Rome, she was then the wife of another of his half-brothers, Herod Philip, and therefore his sister-in-law. But he nevertheless... He seduced her and persuaded her to leave Philip to become his wife. Now, the Jews did not care anything for the Herodians' 
whatsoever. Herod the Great was so brutal. Herod Antipas' father was the father, Herod the Great, who killed and slew all the baby boys who were two years and under in Bethlehem. Uh, the Jews did not like the Herods at all. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great and his sons were not even Jews. They were under the descendants of Esau, the rejected son. And then Herod Antipas, taking his brother's wife, was a direct violation under the Jewish law in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 16. So for those reasons and and much more, the Jews did not even like the Herods. But regardless of Herod's power, albeit limited power within the Roman Empire, John the Baptist let Herod and Herodias have it, proclaiming uh, to them, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, I know what the, the royal couple must have thought. I'm sure they thought, well, how narrow-minded that prophet is. How narrow-minded to say to us that uh, we cannot be together. So for a very personal reason, Herodias absolutely held on to a grudge against John the Baptist. And then for obvious political reasons, Herod arrested John and threw him in the dungeon. Now I want you to notice real quickly by way of introduction how Herod and John the Baptist were really the perfect antithesis one to another. I think it's important to note these differences as really it sets the stage for the remainder of this passage. Uh, Number one, John the Baptist was a plain and simple man. Herod was a very flamboyant and ornate man. Number two, John was righteous. Herod was debaucherous. Number three, John was a man of immense moral courage. Herod was a spineless coward. Number four, John had a clear conscience. Herod had a troubled conscience. Number five, John maintained his integrity and lost his head. Herod forfeited forfeited his integrity and lost his soul. And then finally, John was a man of the spirit. Herod was a man of the flesh. We see in this whole passage of Scripture, it speaks about Herod, and it really tells the tale of Herod's conscience. Of course, we all have a conscience. I have a conscience. You have a conscience. And we're not really sure... Uh, what it is. Uh, Defining the conscience can be quite difficult. Uh, One little boy asked what a conscience was, and he scratched his head for a minute and said, well, I I think I know what a conscience is. He said, something that makes you tell your mother before your sister tells her. (laughs) I don't think that's a bad definition of what a conscience is, right? 
Someone has said that a conscience is the red warning light of the soul. Another said conscience, our conscience is God's watchdog of the soul. Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 teaches that the conscience is the inward witness of God to your heart, which either accuses or excuses your actions. That's probably the best definition of what your conscience is meant to do. And so knowing this, it's very important for us to understand our conscience. It's very important for us to take care of our conscience because the Bible talks about how we can dull our conscience. The Bible warns us not to stifle our conscience. In fact, the Scriptures say that it is even possible for us to even sear our conscience with a hot iron to murder, to put to death our conscience. Well, in the case of Herod, his conscience had been twisted through his refusal to repent. And being that his conscience was so twisted, it was for him completely unreliable. I want us very very quickly to trace the steps that Herod took that led to the death of his conscience. Number one, I want you to notice with me, Herod has a stirred conscience. Herod has a stirred conscience. The scene of our passage takes place in a palace on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea. It is the scene of both a palace and a a prison. Uh, One is a gloomy, dark dungeon. The other is a very opulent mansion. The dungeon that Herod threw John the Baptist in was a dungeon that was located in the lower floor of Herod's palace called the Macarus, which was located on a high ridge down by the Red Sea. The Macarus was surrounded by thick walls and flanked by towers that stood over 250 feet tall. Within this construction, within this magnificent palace, were dungeons in the very lower bottoms, which can be still seen today. It's amazing. But in the dungeon was a man who lived with a clear conscience. In that dark place, in that damp dungeon was a man who would live and then die with a clear conscience. But in the palace, in the mansion, was a man who had it all, but he had, my dear friends, he was afflicted with a a stirred troubled conscience. He is troubled because of the message of God that has come to his soul. Again, to remind you of the of the backstory, there was a time when the royal robed tetrarch, Herod, met the camel-coated prophet, and when they met, there was a confrontation. There was a showdown. 
And John, being the straight shooter he was, absolutely held nothing back. Verse 18 tells us of the reasons why John is in the dungeon. Verse 18 tells us, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this did not set well with Herodias at all, did it? Verse 19 tells us, therefore, Herodias held it against him. She held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. And though King Herod held every advantage as he being the Herod of his jurisdiction, he nevertheless feared John. Verse 20 tells us, it says, For Herod feared John. Why? Knowing he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. Now the question is why? Why did John, or why did Herod fear John? Well, that word fear is a reverential fear. He feared him. He respected him because he was a just man. John was a just man. He was a, a, a holy man. And out of that respect and out of that reverential fear, Herod protected John. He protected John from Herodias. Herodias, on the other hand, did not fear John the Baptist. Herodias did not reverentially fear, did not reverentially uh, respect at all John the Baptist. And because that she did not respect and fear him, she was angry with what John said. And listen, do you know why Herodias was so angry? She knew what John said when John said, it is not lawful for you to marry your brother-in-law. She knew what John the Baptist said was the truth. And she hated it. She knew it was not lawful. Now, how did she know it was not lawful? She didn't know necessarily, the, she didn't follow the laws of Judaism she didn't follow the laws of God, but she still knew it was the truth. Now, why is that? Because the law of God are written, is written upon man's heart. It's in the conscience. We all have a moral uh, compass. And Herodias knew that even though she did not follow Yahweh or His law, she knew she was in sin, and she hated it. Someone has said that the truth will make you free. Oh, but first, it may make you feel miserable. And it may keep you in misery if you don't submit to it. If you don't humble yourself under the weight of truth. Listen, this has been the initial experience of many who have eventually come to Christ. At some point, they, they were confronted with righteousness. Perhaps through a gospel message. 
perhaps by a Christian friend. They saw something of their sin. And they glimpsed the, the, the righteousness that is offered by Christ and Him alone. And at first, they rejected that. They repelled against that. But then, drawn by that righteousness, they entered a gracious discomfort which eventually brought them to Jesus Christ as they humbled themselves before the truth of God. Herod feared. He was also being convicted. Notice in verse 20. And when he heard him, when he heard John the Baptist, he did many things. That is to say that he was greatly perplexed. He was greatly puzzled. But yet, he heard him gladly. He heard him joyfully. Now, what pleasure could there be for Herod listening to the message of John the Baptist? I mean, it's a a rather strange statement, is it not? It is a message which Herod could not stand to hear. He's hearing the truth. But yet, there was a fascination about the message that every day he would leave the opulent mansion, his palace, and go down to the dungeon, and he could hear John the Baptist preach to him. Why is that? Well, perhaps John was a breath of fresh air amidst the social climbing and scheming of the palace court. Perhaps it was just knowing John the Baptist cared not at all about the court etiquette or whether Herod or anyone else liked him. He knew that John was an original. He knew that John the Baptist was a man. He was a, he was a man's man. He was his own man, but yet at the same time he was God's man. And Herod could not say that about himself. And maybe even that uh, provoked John or provoked Herod to listening to him frequently. So there was a strange contradiction going on in the heart of Herod. When the scripture says in verse 20, he heard him, he did many things. Again, he was very much disturbed. He was perplexed. You could say he was tossed between two alternatives. He alternated between the bed of Herodias and the cell of John the Baptist. But unfortunately, he loved the beauty, or he loved his sin more than he loved the beauty of holiness. So here is Herod. He is a man with a stirred conscience. He's a man with a troubled conscience. But there's something more here that I want us to look at very quickly, and that is even the most degraded, the most depraved people recognize the moral authority of goodness and righteousness. Even those who are in out-and-out sin recognize the moral, moral authority of righteousness. Herod's conscience was being stirred by this man of God, John the Baptist. We might even say that Herod's conscience is starting to come alive. If his conscience was somehow on a heart monitor, like a monitor of a, of a heart, 
it would be showing some life in it. Well, as we shall see, unfortunately, this was not to be long-lived. The second thing I want you to notice with me is that Herod has a violated conscience. Herod has a violated conscience. As we saw, Herodias hated the words of John. She hated truth. And by way of lashing out, she took it out on John the Baptist. Listen, a lot of times when there is a horizontal problem of man to man, or in this case, woman to man, it stems from having a vertical problem with God himself. If she would have got that vertical problem right and submitted to the laws of God, she would have had no problem with the horizontal relationship she had with John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, she would, instead of hating John the Baptist, she would have loved him for telling the truth. But Herodias saw, in verse 21, she saw her chance. It says, Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. So we're told that it was a day which was Herod's birthday. And she throws for him a big, big party. And we're told in Scripture of all the parties, particularly those parties of those who know not God and how dangerous those parties turned out to be. We think about Esther, chapter number 1. It was a party that King Azahorus, uh, having tried to debase his wife Vashti, to getting her to dance before the men nude. She declined that. And because she declined that, the king divorced her. Daniel chapter 5, it was at another party that Belshazzar's doom was read to him. And as to the party that's mentioned to in our text, these type of parties were common within the Herodian dynasty. And Herodias knew what to expect. A drinking crowd, which would become increasingly sensual, who would become increasingly nasty as the booze began to kick in. And from what we can tell, the evening was well underway and the crowd was sufficiently under the influence when Herodias made her move, using her teenage daughter, Salome, verse 22, says when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, it pleased Herod and those who sat with him. Now normally this dance would have been one that would have been danced by the professional court dancers and prostitutes, but Herodias put forth her daughter. She had her daughter sin. So we think about the sins of our day and the the sins of mothers that they are committing against their daughters. And we think, wow, this is the first. This has never happened in our world. It has. Depraved 
women in sin will do very depraved things for their advantage for some reason. But we see here that Salome's, her sensuous dance, a dance that was absolutely unheard of, of a woman of her rank. I mean, after all, she was a princess. But young Salome pleased Herod with, and his guests. She begins to do her lewd and wicked dance. She begins to move in such a way that was designed to inflame and to fill the depraved, sex-perverted minds of the guests with passion and lust. And oh, how the king's mind was absolutely inflamed. Herod now is getting ready to sell out. His brain is muddled with wine. His breath is hot with passion. His eyes are burning with lust. He's getting ready to step in the trap. And then, verse 22 tells us that the tipsy tetrarch shouted, Ask me what you want, and I will give it to you. Verse 23, he also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And you can just imagine here the setting of this party how you could probably hear the cheers of men saying, All right, Herod, yeah, there you go. They begin to guess and they begin to wager on what she would ask. One of the guests said, Well, maybe he'll buy her a pair of golden earrings. Another said, Well, maybe she'll ask for a pearled dress from Rome. That's not what happened. Verse 24 and verse 25 tells us that the trap was perfectly sprung. Verse 24 says, So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. And then Salome added, her own gruesome idea on a platter. On a platter. So we see like mother, like daughter here. Suddenly Herod sobered up. The room was silent. Herod knew that he had been had. He knew that he had been schemed and tricked by his wife. Verse 26 tells us, that the king was exceedingly sorry. He was greatly distressed. Now listen, he, Herod was in genuine grief. What is interesting about this word, this word was used only one other time in the New Testament, and it's used to describe the pain in, that Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's amazing. Herod grieved this. He was exceedingly sorry. He was greatly distressed. So for a moment at least, Herod's conscience was absolutely torn. On the one hand, John was a good man. 
And John had done much good for Herod. Herodias, on the other hand, deceived Herod. Verse 26, again, and the king was exceedingly sorry. But we see something happen after that. His pride entered in. He knows what he ought to do. His conscience is screaming at him. Herod, don't do it. Herod, don't do it. And then in that moment, he looks at all the invited guests and says in verse 26, Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her wishes. So he is in the midst of his peers. I mean, after all, he thought to himself, well, what would they think if I backed out? What would they say if I took back my word? His old pride is getting the best of him. He thinks someone might carry the news of his reneging back to Rome and the whole imperial court would laugh at him. He could not have that, he thought. There was only one choice. Verse 27. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. Brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And notice, and the girl gave it to her mother. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Hey, listen, don't feel sorry for John, right? He died with a clear conscience. He's been kicking up gold dust for 2,000 years now. Amen? We don't feel sorry for John. We feel sorry for Herod. We feel sorry for Herod. He's got a violated conscience. Herod's conscience that had begun to live is now stifled because of what he feared others would think. Now listen, when when we read this story on this side of history, this seems very incredible to us as we, we see what's at stake here. His soul. His eternity. But listen to me, there are many today who are doing just the same thing that Herod did 2,000 years ago. How many people's consciences have been awakened to eternal things, who have been awakened to the things of God and their own sinful condition, and yet they have buried it all because of what they feared their friends or family or fiancé or spouse or fellow students would think. Listen, some spend their entire lives basing their decisions upon what other people think. We have politicians who for years have not made one decision according to their own conscience, but rather according to what the lobbyists have been pushing and peddling. 
There are business people who spend their entire day reckoning their decisions with a visualized corporate ladder before them. There are students who sell their souls to somehow escape ridicule. Listen, more people than we realize have lost eternity because they feared what other people think. How foolish. Listen, is the opinion of others keeping you from following the witness of the Holy Spirit? Is it other people keeping you from following Christ? If so, do not be fooled. There are some of you in this building this morning. You know you are lost. You know that you do not have a right relationship with God. You know you are guilty. You know that you are a sinner. And you know that there is only one Savior who can forgive you and save you. But yet that old pride is saying to you, even today, better not do that because of what so-and-so might think or say. Oh, listen, if we could look at the screen of Herod's conscience, what little life he had is quickly beginning to fade Notice thirdly, Herod was, Herod has a calling conscience. He has a calling conscience. After John the Baptist was murdered, Jesus' ministry continued to flourish. His dramatic miracles were absolutely being galvanized in the minds and hearts of those living in that countryside. Even his disciples, as we saw last week, had gone out in his power, in Christ's power, and they too were healing and casting out demons. But one day, just a little wisp of the ministry of Jesus comes in leaking into that pigsty of a palace. Verse 14 tells us, it says, Now King Herod heard of him. Speaking of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore these powers are at work in him. Others with him said, it, it's, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Herod is tormented because he is aware of his personal responsibility. He was aware of his personal responsibility. The deed is done. He is alone with his sin. And now he says, I did it. I want you to notice here that the language... Here is very graphic. The word I in verse 16 is emphatic in the Greek. 
It literally is, I am the one. I did it. And the sense is that he said this to himself again and again and again. Oh, listen to me. We all do evil, which we naturally put away from our conscience as if it never happened. There are times that we refuse to confess that to God. We, there are times where we can uh, refuse to confess that to man. But then some hook, tossed at random in the sea, brings up a memory. We mistakenly suppose was lost in the ocean of oblivion. I mean, even things like trivial things may awaken the, may awaken the suppressed conscience. Maybe it's a chance word or a sound, a scent or a... Maybe a face. But when such things happen, listen, they are meant to call us to repentance and forgiveness. And this is what Herod's conscience was secretly doing in Herod's heart. Hearing about Jesus was reminding Herod of his sin. And Herod should have brought that to Christ. He should have... Ask for forgiveness of that. But for Herod, there was no repentance. There was no radical turning, just a futile occult speculation that Jesus was somehow John who had returned from the dead. Herod was frightened into a paganistic, paganistic spiritism which did not lead him to Christ. And this often happens to a truth-rejecting people. It is no wonder that, that much of post-Christian gospel-rejecting Europe and, and even here in America today is falling to a diseased spiritism which can never deliver the conscience, can never save. Only the gospel of Christ the Messiah offers true life and forgiveness. Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And listen, that includes the conscience. Notice lastly and very quickly, Herod now has a dead conscience. And poor Herod... We see the death of a conscience and ultimately the death of a soul. The last recorded mention of this Herod, Herod Antipas, is a very chilling passage, very chilling reality that at the end of Jesus' life, our Lord was sent from Pilate to Herod who had jurisdiction where Jesus had ministered, Pilate was trying to put the uh, blame or the, uh, all the pressure upon Herod. Pilate did not want to make a decision. He was hoping that Herod would make a decision based upon Jesus and his arrest. But of this meeting, Luke, Luke tells us in Luke 23, verse 8. Again, this is the last time we see Herod. 
It says, now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him. Because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Here Herod merely wanted to see Jesus because he thought Jesus could somehow amuse him. But what we see here is that for Herod, he has no conscience. There was no trace of healthy fear. There was no trace whatsoever of having spiritual conviction. I mean, here is Herod standing face to face, face to face with Christ, who is absolute righteousness, who is an absolute goodness, but yet he saw nothing in him. But more horrible than that, Christ saw nothing in Herod. It was a death of a soul. Christ spoke not a word. Now listen, I'll never fully understand it, this side of heaven. But it is possible for a human being to be so calloused, to be so cold that he or she can stand face to face with Christ and absolutely feel nothing. It is possible to so squash the repeated warnings of the conscience that the conscience becomes dead. This passage before us is a stark warning, primarily for unbelievers. If Christ has been moving one's conscience, if Christ has been moving your conscience, if you realize your personal sin and that Christ is perfect righteousness, then you must believe in Him. You must rest in in Christ. You must come to Him by faith and humble repentance, calling upon Him. This is primarily a message for the unbeliever, but it's not just for the unbeliever. There's a message for the follower of Christ. And that is a neglected conscience can become progressively desensitized to the things of God. A neglected conscience can become desensitized to the things of God so that we do not hear Him when He speaks. We need to cultivate our conscience. How do you cultivate your conscience? How do you strengthen your conscience to the things of God? Well, you do that by filling your mind and your heart with the Word of God. You fill your heart, your mind with the Word of God, and then you obey the Word that you have ingested into your life. And when you do that, you have an an educated conscience, which is then in balance with the Word 
of God. So this is a message for the unbeliever to trust Christ today. If you're lost, call upon Him. Humble yourself now. The Bible teaches us that this thing of salvation is not something that we put off or procrastinate. It's something that we do now. Now is the day of salvation. And to the believer, it is a call for us to watch our conscience, guard our conscience, strengthen our conscience. And it is a call, listen to the fathers that are here who have children, it is a call for you to strengthen your children's consciences. Even your grandchildren's conscience. How do you do that? By giving them the word of God. Teaching them the things of God. The reason that we're seeing so much debauchery today and depravity today is because we have generations and generations of children who have no God consciousness whatsoever. Or the conscience that they do have is so weak that they cannot suppress it to such a point that now that anything goes, anything is allowed. But you have the opportunity with the children that God has blessed you to strengthen their conscience with the word. Let's pray together. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity, Lord, this morning to dig into your word and really explore a subject that is often neglected, the, the gift of our conscience. And Father, we recognize that our consciousness, that our consciences are truly a gift from you. And Father, we confess that there are times when we have allowed our consciences to become calloused, failing to heed their warnings and to follow their promptings. And today we're reminded of the consequences of ignoring, ignoring the voice of, uh, of our conscience. And Lord, we pray that you would awaken our consciences and revive them with your truth. Lord, we lift before you those who may be struggling with a seared conscience. Those who have been ensnared by sin and trapped by just patterns and patterns of rejecting the gospel. And we ask you, Lord, that you would restore their conscience. Give them the wisdom and humility to seek forgiveness and turn back to you, Lord. And Father, as we leave this place, may the message of today's sermon continue to resonate within us. May this message continue to preach to us in the days to come. 
Father, we ask you, Lord, to go with us. Lord, give us your comfort and strength and your guidance in every step we take. We ask all of these things in the mighty, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. I do want to wish each and every father once again a very happy Father's Day. And I do pray that the message that is preached this morning would, that you would meditate on it and you would think on it. And, and not just in the aspect of the, as an unbeliever, but as the aspect of a true believer that you have a responsibility of strengthening your conscience and your children's conscience. And I pray that we would do just that. And maybe somebody here today has been under conviction and you know that you are lost. You do not have a right relationship with you. I pray that you would call upon him. The Bible tells us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you would like to speak with me, I would love to speak with you afterwards and pray with you about any matter that you have. I would love to minister to you in any way that I possibly can. I do want to thank all the guests for coming today, and we pray God's richest blessings upon each and every one of you. Amen. All right, let's sing in response. Hymn number 456. Hymn number 456, Find Us Faithful. Wonderful chorus. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us Once again, happy Father's Day to all the fathers here this morning. And uh, just want to say a special thank you for all the workers for VBS this past week. Um, all the workers, volunteers from, from decoration to tear down, from the kitchen team. What a wonderful, wonderful job they did this week. And we had multiple kids here and children here. And so just want to say again, thank you from the bottom of my heart, from our heart, that we appreciate all the time and effort that you have put in. Uh, the 27th on Tuesday, the 27th is the women's ministry. And we are going to have a 4th of July celebration here on the Sunday evening of the 2nd of July. There will be a, uh, I believe we'll have a cookout and uh, we're going to have a fireworks show. So Make plans for that, um, and we'll solidify that time as we get there. Uh, as uh, Pastor Wade just said, guests, thank you for coming 
and being a part of our worship this morning. And uh, if there's anything that you need that we can do, please reach out and don't hesitate. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.